Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out. Open them up to Luke, the seventh chapter. Luke chapter 7, we're going to be there for the entirety of our study this morning, so it'll just be real easy to just get over there and just leave your Bibles laying there. In Luke, the seventh chapter, going to work the text for these next few minutes together. As you're turning to Luke chapter 7, I will say how great it is to see everybody today. So glad that you are here. It is a breezy first day of the week, but it is the first day of the week. It doesn't matter to me if it was raining or snowing or shining or breezy, whatever it is. If it's the Lord's day, it's just the best day of the week. And I'm glad that you're here. Glad to have guests with us. Appreciate so much the fact that you've chose to join us this day as we honor and, and worship our God. In Luke the 7th chapter, let's get to reading a little bit. In Luke 7, I'm reading here this little parable that Jesus tells. In Luke the 7th chapter, in verses 41 and 42, in Luke chapter 7 and in verse 41, there we are told, Luke 7 verse 41, Jesus says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay... The moneylender canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? In August of 2019, Chase Bank announced that they were going to forgive all of the outstanding debt that was owed on its two Canadian Visa cards. The bank was actually retiring their Amazon Rewards Visa card and the Marriott Premier Visa card. And so they figured that the easiest way for them to just kind of get out of the Canadian market was to just wipe out that debt. And when I say wipe out, that's exactly what I mean. Obliterate it. Zero it out. Just absolutely write it off. Cancel it completely. Cardholders who had an outstanding balance in Canada, they were told, you don't have to pay this. And that's pretty amazing. One cardholder actually said, a guy by the name of Douglas Turner, this guy owed more than $6,000 on his card, he said, it's crazy. I cannot believe it. This kind of thing doesn't happen with credit card companies. Usually you get hit with surprise fees and extra complications and things like that, but, but definitely not loan forgiveness. To have it all gone is almost surreal. And I think that if we got to experience what Douglas Turner experienced, we'd be pretty excited about that as well, to have our debt wiped out. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I think Jesus understands how we feel about debts being relieved. Because that little mini parable we just read in Luke the 7th chapter, that's what it's all about. It's about being forgiven. Jesus uses this illustration of debt relief, debt forgiveness, to make a really important point about the very most important kind of debt. Not monetary debt, but spiritual debt. And it is during that pivotal teaching that a rather amazing scene occurs that ended up causing quite the commotion and quite a stir. Jesus was in the middle of eating dinner. And suddenly a wicked woman came in from outside off the street and she then did something that scandalized everyone who was there. And right about the time that the homeowner was about to tell that woman to get out of my house, Jesus interjected and said, Simon, Simon, I want to tell you a little story. And it is that little story that we just read in verses 41 and 42. And in that little bitty story, we learn some really big truths. We learn some really critical things about divine forgiveness. 
We learn some things about God and His willingness and His readiness to forgive us of sin. And I want to say to you this morning that if you and I, if we ever hope to see heaven someday, then these are truths in this story that we must never, ever forget. And I realize me just making that statement there, that maybe kind of sounds like Josh is embellishing a little bit. Josh is saying these really big things here at the beginning to just kind of grab everybody's attention. I'm not embellishing. I'm saying to you this morning that what goes on in Luke the 7th chapter, it is at the very center and the heart of the gospel. And if you and I want to be Christians, if we want to be in the family of God, if we want to see the gates of heaven someday, then we'd better know... And we'd better believe what Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 7. Now somebody's maybe thinking to themselves, Josh, you said something a second ago about how there was something scandalous that happened here. and I didn't see anything scandalous in those verses we just read. What are you talking about? Well, like all of Jesus' parables, this teaching did not occur in a vacuum. It occurred within a context. There was a reason for Jesus to tell this little story. Let's read that context. That context begins all the way back up in verse 36. In Luke chapter 7, read with me in verse 36. One of the Pharisees, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad that Jesus did not turn down the invitation of this Pharisee by the name of Simon. You know, there were always lots of accusations that were leveled against Jesus about how he eats with sinners. He eats and associates with all of these just the the refuse of society. Well, the truth of the matter is, Jesus would eat with just about anybody. In fact, Luke records for us three different occasions in his gospel where Jesus eats with a Pharisee. And I kind of wonder a little bit as to what this Pharisee wanted to have Jesus over for. Was he wanting to kind of trap him? Was he wanting to put him to the test somehow? We don't know everything about that. Whatever the motivation was though, Jesus accepts this invitation. He does come over for dinner and it is right in the middle of that dinner that we are told, verse 37, that behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house and so she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This woman, she comes inside. Now, unfortunately, this woman is often confused with Mary. Mary, we know, anointed Jesus shortly before His crucifixion. That, of course, occurs in John the 12th chapter. You need to know that this is not that woman. That woman, that Mary, that is Lazarus' sister. And as well, that event occurred in the house of a leper. That's a place that no Pharisee would dare to walk into. This is a totally different scene in a totally different place with totally different people present. In fact, this woman in Luke 7, we don't even know her name. But it was rather standard practice of the day that whenever a famous rabbi came over to eat, that it was okay, it was kind of just acceptable for people to come in off of the street if they wanted to and they could then kind of line up along the outer walls and they could then observe, they could then listen and hear the conversation that was going on with the famous rabbi and the other invited guests and of course the homeowner himself. And so it is into that scene, and I put this picture up here because I, I don't know, I've scoured the internet and there's always lots of images and depictions of these scenes and this maybe seems like maybe about as close of a depiction that I think I'd be comfortable with showing about this. But it is into that scene that this woman walks. 
she would have been very, very out of place. If you ever do that thing, you know, what here, what one thing doesn't look like the others, she would be that one thing. Verse 37 describes her as a sinner. You talk about somebody who's wanting to see Jesus, talk about somebody who is determined to see the Lord, this woman is that. She has come in to that setting, to that environment. And while the Bible's saying that she was a sinner, that doesn't necessarily mean that she was a prostitute. I must tell you this morning that it probably does. I want you to think then of how electric that situation would have been. Everybody's eating and talking and kind of having a pretty good time. The meal commences. Here's Jesus, this famous teacher from Galilee that that everybody wants to hear. Everybody wants to spend some time with. The meal gets served and everybody's just kind of carrying on and then bang, suddenly, in walks through the front door this woman, this wicked woman. And I kind of always imagine this as kind of a movie scene playing out in my mind. This is the point in the movie where the needle on the record player just scratches, just and everything stops. And everybody goes silent. And everybody is staring at her. They are looking at her. And while I do appreciate that she was willing to risk such public shame to walk into that room to see Jesus, we need to be very careful that we don't clean her up too much. Jesus himself is going to say in just a few moments that she has many sins. She's exactly what Luke describes her as, a sinner. And so as everything just kind of comes to a stop and every eye is fixed in her gaze, it's then that it happens. Verse 38, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Everyone in New Testament times ate in a reclined position. You would prop yourself up with one arm, maybe kind of leaning on your elbow, and then your other hand would be free to actually consume the food and eat the meal. And so we don't need to buy into this imagery that's sometimes popular that Jesus, you see an artwork where Jesus is sitting up kind of at a normal table like we have in our kitchens. He's not sitting up at that kind of a table and sitting up in a hardback chair and this woman is kind of crawling under the table doing all of this under the cloak of the table. That's not the image here. Everybody would have been reclined at that table. Their feet would have been directed toward the outer wall which means Jesus' feet would have just been right there in plain view. All of this scene is happening in plain view. And what does she do? She begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And she is so overcome with emotion. She's weeping. She's crying. She's emotional. It is in that moment that I am convinced that this woman, she just totally forgets herself. Because she does something that no woman would ever do in public. She took her hair down. That would have been absolutely scandalous in the first century world. Nobody would do that. In fact, there are actually some indications that there were rabbis who taught that if a woman took her hair down in the presence of another man, that actually the husband of that woman could divorce her for that. This woman, though, she's not concerned about that. She forgets everybody in the room. All she's focused on is Jesus. All she's thinking about is the things that she has done in her life. She's not worried about political correctness. She's not concerned with the social conventions of the day. Absolutely not. All she wants and all she's thinking about 
is that she has this tremendously expensive perfume in an alabaster flask and she wants to pour it on Jesus' feet and she is sobbing and weeping and as her tears fall she realizes what a mess that she has made of herself and her life. But in that moment she realizes I have nothing to dry Jesus' feet with. And so what does she do? She actually begins to dry His feet with her own hair. Can you imagine that? Please, please... Don't look at that and think of that. Put that image in your mind and think that there's something sensual about that. This woman is a mess. She is crying unashamedly. Her nose is probably runny from all of her weeping. Her hair is stringy with a a muddy mixture of dirt and ointment and salty tears. This isn't sexy. She's just doing what the most menial slave would do whenever people came into a house. And if ever Simon, the Pharisee, if ever he was looking for kind of a gotcha moment, well, he's got it now. Verse 39, please. Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Well, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You know, Simon is absolutely sure that this proves exactly what he knew all along when he invited Jesus over, that this guy, he really is not a prophet. This guy really isn't some special person sent from God because no prophet would ever allow a woman like this to do these kinds of things. You know, being right with God means you need to separate yourself. In fact, isn't that what the Pharisees were all about? Isn't that what Pharisee means? It means to separate, to be separatist. We're pulling away from everybody else, this kind of human garbage and human debris. And it is at this point that Jesus is just, He is at His absolute best. These are always the moments where Jesus is at His best. When people get kind of cocky, when people think that they know everything about everything, When people start writing all kinds of preconceived notions across Jesus' foreheads, that's the moments when Jesus is always at His best. Look out now. Jesus answers verse 40. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. And what follows then is this parable where Jesus uses it to say to Simon, Simon, you ask me if I don't know about all... Accuse me that I don't know about this woman. I know about this woman. I know all about this woman. In fact, I know all about you. In fact, you don't think I'm a prophet. I'm actually going to let you know that I know exactly what you are thinking, what's on your mind, and what's on your heart this very moment. There was a certain money lender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? You know, the parable itself is really, it's really short, one of Jesus' shortest parables. And it is very on the nose and it is to the point. A denarii is, of course, a day's wage for a day laborer. And so if you owe 500 denarii, then you owe essentially like a year and a half's worth of salary. That's a lot of money. Think about how much you make in a year and a half. That's a tremendous debt. The other person owes 50 denarii. That would be about what? You know, maybe a month and a half, a couple of months worth of salary. That's, that's a lot of money, but it's not nearly the same as a year and a half's worth of salary. And so Jesus ends the parable, as He often does, with just a very pointed question. And you can see that Simon is nervous about that question and what it means. Verse 43, Simon answered. Jesus asked, you know, which one of them is going to love Him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom He canceled the larger debt. 
And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. I want you to notice that even though Simon gives the right answer, Jesus doesn't let Simon off the hook immediately. Instead, Jesus immediately shifts to making his real point. Verse 44, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I love that question. I love that question because I can't even begin to imagine that anybody in that room that day didn't see that woman. Oh, you mean the prostitute down by your feet crying and weeping and wiping her feet with her hair? Oh, I hadn't even noticed until you said something about that. No! Simon saw her. Everybody saw her. What Jesus wants to know though is are you really seeing her? Do you see what she is doing? Do you see the significance of what this woman is doing? Simon, you have totally missed her. Jesus says, verse 44, I entered your house. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, Simon, verse 45, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you didn't anoint my head with oil, Simon. But she, she has anointed my feet with ointment. The hospitality of the day demanded that when guests come into your home, the very things that Jesus lists off here in verses 44, 45, and 46, those are the kinds of things that you're supposed to do for your guest. You're supposed to wash your guest's feet. You're supposed to give them a greeting. You're supposed to take care of them and be hospitable. Those are the kinds of things you have to do. And what Jesus says is He says, Simon, your reception of me into your home has been nothing like that. You've received me into your home and it's been cold and sterile and stiff. It's lacked a real sense of hospitality. This woman though, this woman has done all the things that you have failed to do. And if maybe you're wondering, well, well, what about that parable? What about punctuating the parable? Did the parable go away? Did it disappear? Nope. Jesus ties it all together now. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Please don't read that passage and somehow think that Jesus is advocating some kind of a system where your love for God can be counted up like brownie points and then you can then cash those brownie points in in order to purchase yourself forgiveness. Okay, Lord, I, I went to church today. It's Sunday morning. I went to church. I made time for you. I worshipped you and I was engaged in those things. That ought to be worth you know, a certain amount of brownie points and you now owe me forgiveness for that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not how He's describing this. What Jesus is saying, though, is that this wicked woman, she corresponds to the debtor in the story who had been forgiven the 500 denarii. And that's exactly why she's doing what she's doing. And that all then leads to Jesus making what I think is the greatest statement to her in verse 48 when He says, Your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, at this point, there are still folks in the room who still don't quite get it all, and so Jesus wants to... Just make sure that they do get it. Verses 49 and 50. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this? Who is this who even forgives sins? And so Jesus says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now of course, there's lots about that story that I would still like to know. I'd like to know, I mean, whatever happened to this woman? You know, did she continue on faithfully serving the Lord from that point on? And what happened to Simon? 
You know, Jesus is all this stuff is saying this to Simon, the, the, the owner of the house. Whatever happened to him, did he finally get with it? And the answer is, we don't know all of that. And I think maybe Luke doesn't get into all of those details because what Luke, the writer here, wants us to understand and what he wants us to ask is, is where does that leave me? What about me? Where am I in this story? It seems to me that Jesus is teaching three enormously important truths in Luke the 7th chapter about divine forgiveness. And I am talking this morning about God's forgiveness. And I will just give a quick teaser for this evening. Come back tonight at 6 o'clock. I want to talk about man's forgiveness. The forgiveness that we are called upon to extend to one another. But I don't think we can even begin to understand any of that until we first understand what God has done. An understanding of His forgiveness. And so what do we learn from this occasion in Luke chapter 7? Well, first and foremost what we see is that when you are forgiven, when you truly receive that forgiveness, then that always means. It always means real love in return. When you are the recipient of great forgiveness like this woman was, how can you be anything but profoundly grateful? And I really think that is the main point of the parable. Verse 42, which one, Simon... Which one will love the most? Who's going to be the most grateful? Who is going to return great love back to the one who relieves the debt? You know, how did those debtors in the story feel whenever they were released from those debts? How did this woman feel when Jesus releases her of her debt? Maybe more to the point for you and I, how do we feel Knowing that Jesus, those of us that are Christians, knowing that He has relieved us of our debt, the debt of sin. How do we feel about that? Is there some kind of a response about that? I'm saying to you this morning, you cannot receive such a great gift as that and not feel something and not just be overwhelmed by it. You can't be relieved of the crushing weight of your guilt and your sin without wanting to do something, to go running to Jesus and to throw yourself at Him and to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. To then be involved in His service and doing things in return for Him to show that love. You can't say the words enough. You can't do the deeds enough. In fact, the more you come to understand about sin, the more you come to realize how helpless you were in your sin. You come to realize just how lost you were in sin and the more grateful you become as the days and as the years go by. It's like the words of that song that we often sing, I was so lost, I should have died. I should have. I was so lost and it was my fault and the, the, what I really deserved and what I really should have received is I should have died. And the more you come to know about the awfulness of sin, I talked about that last week when we look at the cross, when we see the awfulness of sin, just how much it took for Jesus to come to this earth and to forgive our sins, to be the Lamb of God, then the more you want to say, the more you want to express, the more you want to demonstrate your love and gratitude for God. In every way that I possibly can, I want to let the Lord know, Lord, I'd be nothing without you. I would have nothing. Lord, you saved me. And those of you that have been Christians for a good long while, I, th I think you probably would agree with me, that, that as we grow and as we mature in the Lord, that gift of forgiveness, it just becomes more sweet and more beautiful and more profound as time goes by. It provokes within us greater depths of love and service each day. 
it kind of makes me wonder about, about weak Christians. About Christians who are really just kind of Christians in name only. Christians who aren't really growing. Christians who still essentially live like the world. Christians who are half-hearted in their Christianity, who don't really seem to have a passion for the Lord who forgave them. It makes me wonder, do they even understand what it means to be forgiven? Has it ever, has it ever got in? Do they not comprehend what a big deal forgiveness is? Maybe that is the problem. Maybe the problem is, as was the case with Simon, secondly, is that some folks just don't understand that forgiveness... It only comes in one size. There's only one kind of forgiveness and the parable bears it out. That kind of forgiveness is big forgiveness. God's forgiveness is only big. I'm afraid that sometimes folks read this parable and what they decide is is that, well, since I was raised in the church, so to speak, I've kind of grew up in this, I've been around this all of my life, My parents did a great job of raising me and they didn't allow me to go out and live in the far country of sin. They didn't let me get involved in all that kind of stuff. As a result, when I became a Christian, I just I don't know that I really appreciated it to the level the way someone who's a worldly person would appreciate it. You know, I didn't do the whole thing of going out and sinning it up before I finally came to the Lord. That wicked woman in Luke 7, well, well, yeah, she, she did a lot of wicked things. And so, of course, she's going to love the Lord a lot. She's going to be overflowing with gratitude. People in our world today who live like pagans, they come to a knowledge of the truth, rack up this huge tab of sin. They then become Christians and, oh, they're just overwhelmed. And yeah, they see how big forgiveness is. But me? Me? What have I ever really done that was so bad? I mean, yeah, I've I've sinned, but I'm kind of like the 50 denarii guy. I mean, just 50 denarii worth of sin. I mean, how much can I really appreciate that? How much can I really get excited about being forgiven of 50 denarii worth of sin? Well, if that is you this morning, brother, sister, then welcome to Simon's world. Because that's precisely what Simon was thinking. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to correct and to point out that that is absolutely wrong. Would you look at verse 42 again? I think this is the most important phrase in the entire parable. Verse 42, these five words, underline them in your mind, when they could not pay. Do you see it there? They. Neither of these debtors could pay. It's not like one of them was walking around and said, oh, well, 50 denarii, oh yeah, I got that just in walking around money. I think I could just pay that off right now. No, that's not what's going on here. Neither debtor could pay when they could not pay. When you can't pay, it doesn't matter whether your debt is 50 or 500 or 5 million. If you can't pay, you can't pay. Have you ever sinned? Have you ever sinned just one time? Then you are a sinner. And what that means is that means that you are now in debt to God. You owe Him. You owe Him one soul. Because God gave you a soul. And when He gave you that soul, it was perfect. And it was clean. And it was pure. And it was white. But you took that soul. And you wrinkled it up. And you dirtied it up. And you stained it with your sin. You now owe God one soul. Here's my question. How are you paying that? How are you going to be able to pay that debt? 
You have no currency with which to pay that debt. You can't even begin to write that check. You are indebted to the Lord. And that's exactly what Simon needed to understand here. Simon was too busy looking at that woman and saying, well, she's a sinner. Look at her. Look how bad she is. What Simon needed to be saying was, I am a sinner. My sins may not be the same as hers, but I am in debt to the Lord. Because in this parable, Jesus makes clear that all of us who are of an age of accountability, all of us are in debt to God. And not a single one of us is able to pay that debt. We are all spiritually bankrupt. Which means then that forgiveness, it only comes in one size. Extra, extra large. Because that's what it takes to forgive even one sin. That's what it takes to forgive every sin. We are all in over our heads here. None of us can pay. We each need the grace and mercy of God in an incredible way. And I am convinced that this is exactly why many Christians today, in fact, I'll even point the finger at myself here, this, this is why sometimes we are not everything that we should be as Christians. This is why I'm afraid sometimes we are not more evangelistic in telling others about the truth. This is why we are not on fire for the Lord in our service to Him. And it's because somehow we imagine that, well, the Lord really hasn't done all that much for me. Like I said... I, I'm kind of like the Simon here. I kind of grew up being taught what was right. I didn't go out and do the prodigal lifestyle. I'm a Simon living in the middle of, of a world full of these wicked women like this. And as a result, sometimes I confess I am guilty of looking down my long religious nose at others. And I say and I think to myself, well, you know what? I'm sure glad that Jesus came to earth and paid for the sins of all them wicked people out there. Jesus did something really colossal for them because they needed it. But, but me? me? He didn't do all that much for me. I mean, I was, was kind of already pretty okay to begin with. What did Jesus say to that? Jesus would say, wake up, Simon, verse 42, when they could not pay. Don't be worrying about others and how much of a tab that others have racked up against God. You look in the mirror. You take a look at yourself. You think about standing in front of a holy and just God, recognizing that you are utterly bankrupt. You are no different. I'm saying this to you right now. You are no different than the person that is sitting next to you this very morning. You're both sinners. And that means that both of us, all of us, need the only kind of forgiveness that there is. And that is great forgiveness. Extra, extra large forgiveness. Of course, even at the end of the day, the Simons of the world still sometimes don't get it. And that means that they don't end up seeking out the forgiveness that God would offer. Which brings us to this third truth, because it is certainly so that nothing, nothing shuts out God like a person who thinks that they are self-sufficient. You know, many people, I, I, I'm compelled, many people do understand the condition of being forgiven means realizing that we are broken, that we are insolvent, that whether we are an accomplished churchgoer or whether we are an accomplished sinner, we realize, I think many people realize, we, we, we can't pay that debt. And of course the good news of the gospel is that no one is beyond God's grace and mercy. No one has sinned so much and to such a degree that God cannot forgive them. 
No one's sins are so awful that what Jesus did on the cross somehow just, just is not able to atone for that. No one is beyond God's forgiveness except, except for the person who is sure that he or she doesn't really need that forgiveness. That's the person who can't be forgiven. As long as I pretend that, that I'm a really righteous person, as long as I tell myself that, well, you know, I'm not nearly as bad as, as her, I don't do the kinds of things that he does, as long as I convince myself that all my good works, I mean, came to church this morning, pray regularly, read my Bible regularly, by doing that I'm kind of paying off my debt little by little, making payments, making, I'm on the installment, I'm on the long-term installment payment plan here for my sins. I'm making myself somehow worthy of God's love. God just ought to be glad that He's got such good people like me on His side. As long as I take the route of Simon, the route of self-sufficiency, then the longer I will remain lost. Maybe that's why the very greatest of disciples, the very most devoted Christians, people like Paul, they are the ones who say, I am the chiefest of sinners. And it is only by the grace of God that I am what I am. Nothing is more disastrous than when offered the greatest gift ever to push that away and say, no thanks, I don't even need that very much. You know, I am a little bit jealous of those Canadian Chase credit card holders. I actually have an Amazon Visa card, but it's in the United States. And I sure would have liked to have known what it feels like to get my statement in the mail one month and to scroll down to that section that says amount due and to find just big zeros on there. That would be wonderful, honey. We ain't got to worry about this. We got some extra money. Let's go out to eat tonight. What a joy that would be. To have our debt forgiven. As wonderful as that would be, and I think we all would understand what a wonderful thing that would be, why then am I not more grateful and more excited to have received a forgiveness that is greater and grander than any human bank could ever offer? Why am I not shouting from the rooftops about the divine forgiveness that I have been the recipient of? Is it possible? Is it possible that maybe somehow I have failed to realize the magnitude of what I've received? And as a result, I'm not responding to the Lord in heartfelt love and gratitude. Is it possible that I am tricking myself into thinking that, well, you know, I really don't need big forgiveness like other people do? And is it possible that I have locked myself up in self-sufficiency? If so then as I said at the outset of this lesson, this is the heart of the gospel. In many ways, this is the dividing line that will keep people from ever setting foot into the kingdom of heaven. And So really the question is not this morning as we've studied from Luke chapter 7, the question is not what do we think of that sinful woman? And the question isn't even, well, what do we think of Simon the Pharisee? The question is, what does God think of me, a sinner, and when will I take hold of that extra, extra large forgiveness that He has extended to me? In just a moment, we're going to stand. and We are going to sing the song that's been chosen as an invitation song, number 322, Bring Christ Your Broken Life.
And we sing that song to invite you to, to receive forgiveness, to be forgiven of your sins, and to have that happen this very hour. To be baptized in water, as Acts 2 and verse 38 instructs, so that you can come up out of that water a Christian, a child of God, and you can know the joy of that one size of forgiveness that it is extra, extra large. If you are a Christian and you're not living as you ought to, if you are away from God and you too need the forgiveness of God, then once again you can know the joy of being forgiven once again. You can know the blessings and the gratitude and the love that comes from receiving that forgiveness when you repent and when you come back to the Lord. Do not sit here this morning as we sing this song do not sit here and simon yourself. Think very soberly about the truth that this little parable teaches and this story in Luke 7 teaches and then step out in faith and obtain that forgiveness that God offers. If you're subject to heaven's invitation, if we can help you in any way, we encourage you to do that right now through the words of this song. Do it while we stand and while we sing.